Well, good morning. If you're new with us or visiting, this is uh, what we do once a month. The first Sunday of each month, we have what we call Celebration Sunday, where we set aside a uh, once a month at least, hopefully one day it can be more than that, where we set it as our objective to commend ourselves and to be exhorted to rejoice in the Lord. Um, I've spoken about this a whole lot through our four years here together, and it is a central concern of mine that we, the people of God, would have joy in God. And hopefully today, you'll see some of the reasons why. Today we'll be examining Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Please turn there with me in your copy of God's Word. It's on page 375 in your pew Bible, even though we don't have pews. You should be able to find one in the seat back in front of you, page 375. You need a paper copy to eliminate distractions for you. Nehemiah 8, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, these are going to be difficult, Matthiatha, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, and on his right, Padaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbad, Danan, Zechariah, Meshulam, on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads in and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Hakab, Shabbath, Shabbathai, Odiah, Maasiah, Kelethai, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Pelathai. Give me a 60 on that. The Levites helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priests, 
and the scribes and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing. Who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Let us pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your steadfast love. With you there is forgiveness, and you have done all things well to bring about this great salvation to us. You called us to Yourself that we may be glad in You forever. Help us see this grand, incomprehensible, incomparable privilege. Help us see today from this text how You desire Your people to rejoice in You. And may we, as a church, catch and share this same vision of sacred celebration in the things that matter most, now and into eternity. May we be a people marked by joy in the Holy Spirit, gladness in God, happiness in the Lord Jesus Christ, and great rejoicing together. And if I could ask that you would pray right now in your own heart and mind, even if you do not know the Lord, if you do not trust Him yet, please pray that God would give you understanding of His Word, that you would find your joy in Him. And if you would also pray for us, that the Lord would guard us and protect us from the enemy, from false thoughts and ideas, that the Lord would help us concentrate and free us from distractions in our own hearts, in our own circumstances. Please pray finally for me that... The words would adorn the text and that everything I say would be helpful and clear. Father, we do love You and we trust You. Pray that as we see how committed You are to our joy, that we will trust You more than we ever have. We pray all these things in the almighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I begin this message today with two assumptions or assertions, assumptions or assertions at work. Here they are, that verse 12, the result of the passage, the end result, is, number one, an inspired narrative description of joy in the Lord. And the second um, assertion or assumption is that verse 12 is or ought to be, appealing to you. The first assumption is important because there are just so many passages in the Bible we could go to to talk about joy. We've been reading through Philippians as a church, 
And there's almost no book where there is such a focus on joy. We could have just picked chapter 4, which we'll be reading together in our scripture reading portion of the service next Lord's Day, Lord willing. So why come to what may be to some of you an obscure text to talk about joy? Well, from my perspective, biblical narratives are crucial for us to build out our theology. While it's simple and easy and preaches well just to say, rejoice in the Lord, go do it. Uh, it, it. Saying that to some people is like telling you to go out and build a ladder to the moon. Because we don't know how to rejoice in the Lord sometimes. And there are those among us who greatly struggle to grasp at joy. A lot of good things can be said about objective Christian realities. And I can tell you a lot about the commands of Scripture, but part of my interest as a preacher is to help you put it all together and know how to do it. That's the first assumption. We need narratives like this to show us actually how to get there. So I believe, like Paul says in Romans 15.4, these things were written for our instruction. These things, meaning the Old Testament. That through the endurance, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The second assumption, I said, is that verse 12 is appealing to you. I don't think I need to argue for that. At least I don't think I do. Um, I'm assuming that there is almost no person in this room, if you know the Lord, who would not be really excited about verse 12 being true. I'll read it again. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Who doesn't want that? Dare to raise your hand? That's not something you want? Here's the amazing thing that we will see. I hope, is that the person in this place who most wants verse 12 to be true for you is the Lord himself. He is that committed to your joy, your gladness in him. Even if you do not trust the Lord, I've said it many, many times, the Lord himself is more committed to your joy and your gladness, and yes, even happiness, than you have ever been. And that you ever could be. So, let us enter the world of the text that we may see and understand the joy that is our birthright as adopted sons and daughters of God. A few things need to be said about the historical context and setting, and that historical context and setting will tell us a little bit about joy itself. Number one, my assertion, I'm sorry if you don't have notes to follow along with, I failed to print them. But the first thing you need to know from historical context and setting is, number one, that joy is built. Joy is built. How do I come to this conclusion? Well, you need to know a little bit about the story of how we got here in Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah begins in a dire situation. The wall around Jerusalem is torn down. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's a shadow of its former glory. The people are harassed by bands of robbers and brigands and thieves. And the city of Jerusalem is held as a joke by the surrounding people. A derision. Nehemiah, the human hero of the story, you can tell that because the book bears his name. You can laugh. He's convicted and broken hearted when he hears about the state of Jerusalem. 
because it reflects poorly on God and His ability to keep His promises. And with no dream, no vision, no hearing of any voice, and not even the ministry of any prophet, Nehemiah decides to do something about it. And so he prays. He prays. He hatches this plan to get his boss, the pagan king of the Persians, the most powerful man in the world at the time, to not only give him the time off to go and rebuild Jerusalem, but to fund the project. And it works. Nehemiah takes the long trek that would have taken months to go from Susa, the capital at the time, all the way back to Jerusalem with supplies in tow to rebuild the wall. And he has orders from the king to, to carry him in a long way. You're going to give us stuff. And as he goes, he accumulates all the stuff. He needs to rebuild the wall. And when he gets there, he has to whip up support. He has to slap some sense into the rulers. But after some persuading, he gets full buy-in from the people and the work starts. It was a huge project. You can read all about it in chapters 1 through 7. There were no contractors or professional builders. It was the wealthy and the poor of the city together. It was the nobles and the commoners. It was the rulers and the slaves all working together to rebuild the wall. So, I make this argument then that joy is built. Joy of this kind. The kind that I hope you will see in this passage. The kind that I hope you want is built. You could say it this way. The joy has to be sought or contended for, or planned even. Joy is not something that happens to you unexpectedly. Understand the situation that the people were in. They were harassed, depressed, shamed, and then, this is the point, on the far side of serving, joy was made possible. They were working together for a common goal, for the glory of God and the good of His people. Only then is the context for joy, the seedbed, if you will, the cleared ground where that building can be built even happens. If you set out to be happy, or if you set out to just not be sad, as the objective of your quest, you will fail, and you'll never find lasting joy. I promise. Only when you give up that plan and start by serving and building the kingdom of God will the possibility of joy, even the possibility of joy, be introduced in your heart. You might object at this point. I'm not serving in any significant or sacrificial or consistent way, and I'm just fine. I'm not sad all the time. Frankly and seriously, dear friends, that's an evidence of hardness of heart, that you're able to be happy and content without serving. So, if you look at your life, and there is a serious lack of joy, and you're not serving, rejoice, because your heart is working properly. You're not supposed to feel happy if you're not entering into the service of your God. So joy is built. Second thing we need to see is that joy is defiant. Those words probably don't go together for you very often. Word association game. Who would say joy? Defiance. But yes, that's exactly the case with the people. And what I mean by this is that joy in the Lord is not only possible through trials, but it often comes into being 
through trials and grows through them. We know this. This, I mean, this is basic Christian theology, but what an amazing truth. We so often forget it. The people had rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, but there were still major, major problems. So no, a wall doesn't always fix all the problems. That was for free. Jerusalem was still in a state of economic depression. They still had enemies that wanted nothing but their harm. Waiting for even the slightest opportunity to disrupt the progress that they had made. And on top of that, they had a ton, and that's putting it mildly, a ton of reform that still needed to happen within Jerusalem itself. They needed religious reform. You can read about it in the rest of Nehemiah. There's a lot of cleaning house that needed to happen, quite literally. Nehemiah himself does some cleaning house in later chapters, and he's literally pulling people's hair out, chucking stuff out windows. Like it's, the Bible goes wills off sometimes. Like there, there was a lot of mess that still needed to be cleaned up. Things were not all okay. But still, joy happens. Jerusalem, the priesthood, the government, the economy, the religious practices, they're all a mess. Does that sound familiar? I mean, even if none of those were the case, they lived in the 5th century B.C., Life was hard. They hadn't discovered espresso. They had no smoked brisket. They had no game consoles or central heating or air. I mean, things were rough, guys. And yet still, in that moment of time, at that sacred, solemn assembly that we just read about, joy. Joy that, if you're paying attention, I hope you envy. Even with all of our modern comforts and blessings that we have, we look at that and say, man, that'd be nice. Wouldn't that be great? So how do I come from that and say that joy is divine? Joy is divine because it looks around at maybe a long list of things that are not good, that are still wrong, that still need to be fixed, maybe ones that can't be fixed, and says, no, I will rejoice in the Lord. That is the defiance of joy in your God. Joy begins with a stubborn, defiant will. It may sound very odd to you, but it is so, so true. A deep commitment of the soul that says to yourself, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. You're not allowed to be sad. Does that sound like you? Needs to be. Joy is going to be possible in your life. I'm not trying to make you feel sad or bad for not having this defiant will towards your circumstances to rejoice in God, but you've got to have that or else joy will never happen. So take all that anti-government, anti-culture, anti-woke stubbornness and defiance and aim it also at your own heart and command it that it is not allowed not to be happy in God. I want us to take note of several things, many observations about this text, and they fall into two sections now as we approach the straight exegesis, now that we understand the historical context and how joy is possible even in the midst of trial. The two categories that we'll see is the roots of joy. 
the roots of joy in verses 1 through 9. And then eight characteristics of joy in verses 9 through 12. We will, Lord willing, move through these very quickly. But I hope, my hope is that we will all grow in our understanding of how joy can be ours. And how we too can have something like, dare I say, even better than what happens in verse 12. Do you believe it's possible? Well, let's see. So first, the roots of joy. Joy only grows as it is rooted in other things. We've seen some general characteristics about joy that's built, defiant. Now we look underground and look at its roots. How does that beautiful tree of Christian joy draw its strength? The first root of joy that we see in the text is hunger for the Word. Hunger for the Word. You see this very clearly in verses 1 through 4. This is obvious. This is just a surface level exegetical conclusion. Notice that this whole assembly of the people together to hear the Word, whose idea is that? The people. The idea of Ezra reading the law for at least four hours to everyone who could understand while standing outside, whose idea is that? The people. The plan and execution of building a grandstand, a platform for Ezra to read the law from so that all the people could hear, and big enough for all these leaders who we can't pronounce their names for to stand on his left and right. Whose idea was that? It was the people. How different is that from how churches are planted nowadays? And how many church growth strategies are out there? What happens usually in those is you get a group of leaders together or either a core group for a plant or your staff or your group of pastors and you go and you plead and try to get people to come together. You try to make it welcoming enough. You try to make sure that the temperature is just right. You try to make sure that there's programs for all ages. You try to make sure that everyone has somewhere comfortable to sit. you got to have a cool enough band, nice enough building, catchy slogans. Interesting studies, good enough snacks and drinks, and maybe, maybe, maybe if the preacher doesn't preach too long and says nothing offensive, maybe people will stay around. That is modern wisdom in church planting. That's how the books are written. All of those things are not bad in and of themselves. But to have to do them so that people will even show up or stay interested indicates, among other things, that the central problem with our church in this nation, the church in this nation today, is not that we lack bold, faithful preachers. That may be a problem too. The central problem is not that the Word of God is not available. The central problem is not that there's a famine of hearing the Word, though that may be true as well. The central problem of our church today in this nation is that there is not a hunger for the Word of God. Under this consideration, though, our focus is is positive. If you want to have joy, this is the point. If you want to have joy, if you wish to have something like, or even better than verse 12, what you have to have in the beginning, one of the very first things, hunger. 
for the word of God. So with our focus on joy, both you as an individual and for us as a church, we must strive to pray with all eagerness that the Lord would give us this level of zeal. At least, these were old covenant people without the Holy Spirit. At least in the way that we have Him. Look at their degree of hunger for the Lord. Do you hunger for the Word of God? How would your spouse answer that question? How would your screen time updates answer that question? I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm trying to show us that if we want real joy in God, we need to beg the Lord together to give us hunger for His Word. I've said before in other contexts that you know that revival is about to happen when it's the people who demand to hear the Word preached. The second root of joy is proper worship. You see this in verses 5 through 7. I'll just read them again very quickly. Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed God, blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And all the names that are hard to pronounce, they helped the Levites, they helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. This passage is one of my favorite texts in my capacity as a preacher and pastor, and probably you can see why. One of the things that stands out, just one of the things that stands out of this text is that because of their hunger for the Word of God, the people are so Godward and focused on the Lord in their time together. They are attentive and reverent, might I say. One word that would summarize their posture, reverence towards the Lord. A few things stand out pretty clearly from just a surface level reading of the text. First, the people have Godward initiative. They stand unprompted. And they respond unprompted because of their zeal for the Lord and His Word. There's no official liturgy. There's no official going through the motions that Ezra had to come up with. There's no plan. There's just full blast eagerness and unity of mind towards God and His Word. Second, they are concerned primarily with the audience of one. The people rejoice in blessing God. We can think about being blessed, and that's one of the central questions when, when you leave here. Oh, I was really blessed today. It's not a bad thing. Of course not. But what the people are interested in is blessing God. The word has the sense of speaking good about it. It's the opposite of a curse in Hebrew. So they're speaking good words about God and they're rejoicing that we are saying together good things about God because He deserves it. They're concerned with the audience of one. 
I'm not saying that you can't come into this room with needs or concerns or burdens. I want you to do that. But the best thing for you as a spiritual being created for God's glory is to begin to understand that your needs are addressed as you do what you were created to do. And that is to bless God. To find your good in Him. Lastly, what we see in their proper posture of worship is that, as I said earlier, reverence. Let's talk a little bit about that. Awe, maybe even fear of the Lord, we might say. Fear of the Lord is a major root of joy. You can't have real, deep, abiding joy if you do not walk in worship with a real, felt, and expressed awe and reverence and fear towards God Himself. You can be flippantly pleased or happy with a lot of things. You can watch a meaningless video on your favorite website. Funny cats or whatever. Think that because I hate cats. Dog person. You can laugh. You can have a good time. You can waste your hours. But deep Christian happiness, blessedness, the kind of rejoicing we see in verse 12 only comes when a person encounters, sees, and knows, and embraces that which causes awe and fear and reverence. Glory, then, seeing glory and being in awe of glory is one of the roots of joy. The third root of joy, just very straightforward from verse 8, is hearing and understanding the Word. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The Levites are in and among the people. We don't know exactly how many people were gathered in the square. It could have been thousands. You have Ezra on the grandstand reading to all the people. And then in and among the crowd, the Levites are interspersed throughout, giving the sense, explaining the text. Not sure how all that worked because that could be really self-defeating and distracting if they're explaining it while... Ezra is still reading, so maybe it was something like Ezra would read a little bit, and then especially if it were a difficult or confusing part, he would pause, and the Levites would explain it to the people that were around. Or maybe if someone just raised their hand, a Levite would go over and answer their questions. I'm not sure how it went. Maybe a combination of all those things. Either way, this is another reason this is a favorite text of a lot of preachers, because there's our job right there. Read the text. Explain the text. Read the text. Explain the text. Look, I hope I inspire you. I hope to encourage you. It's great if I can stimulate the asking of really good questions in your heart and mind. And it's wonderful if I can get you to ponder deep, beautiful truths. It's all great. And I do try to do it all in under 55 minutes. Try. But those are frosting on the cake. The core job of a preacher is to give the sense of the text. That's it. Because all those other things, being inspired, encouraged, lifted up, 
All of that will happen, except maybe the length question. If the preacher merely just does his job to give a sense of God's word to God's people. To satisfy that hunger. Maybe me explaining it that way helps you understand why I do the things I do when I'm up here. Not as good as I hope to be. But I do think, I believe this, is that if you give your attention to what I'm saying for these moments and commit to removing distractions from your heart and from your environment, you will come away from each message, each Lord's Day, with a better understanding of the text. You will get something of the sense of what God is saying. That's my purpose. And get this, get this, I do it because, of course it's my job as a preacher to give the sense of the word, but another reason, maybe even the main reason in terms of the end goal, is that I want you to have joy in God. Do you believe that sitting under good preaching is crucial, in fact, an irreplaceable root of your joy? That's how God designed you, that's what we see in this text. We want joy that lasts. We're spiritual beings. And this, this whole practice, this whole discipline is crucial to your spiritual growth. Hearing and understanding the Word of God. The fourth, or fourth, fifth, and sixth, we'll just bundle it all together into one. The fourth root of joy are conviction, sorrow, and lament. See this in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, uh, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said all to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Again, it's obvious. But. Notice that this is the first thing the text speaks to as, as an emotional or feeling side of things that results in the hearts of the people after hearing the word that they were hungering for. Sorrow, conviction, lament, weeping. It's a sanctified negative emotion. Not happy. It is not self-loathing, but it is hatred of sin. It is not self-centered depression or sulking or moping. It is holy sorrow. It is not sadness about circumstances. It is being appalled by sin and being broken. This is not hopelessness. This is a profound, tear-filled weeping of lament because of how we, God's people, have wronged our God. Honestly, it, it couldn't be more clear from this text or from the rest of Scripture, but you also know this from your experience. In the moments, I, I, can, I can bet as much money as I could want, if I had any, that in every case in your life, when you have encountered real Christian joy, it has been after you have come to real biblical sorrow over sin. 
conviction at least. On the surface, this seems odd because the people are weeping and then they're instructed three times in, in the verses that follows not to weep or not to be grieved. What is that about? Put it simply to explain the apparent contradiction. Because you were grieved, rightly, now it's time to rejoice. That's the point. The exact same principles, even the exact same words that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So, we should not seek grief or wear our emotions on our sleeves or look for opportunities to be sad, right? That's, that's not biblical Christianity. But you have to begin to ask yourself this question. If the Word of God never cuts to the heart and brings me, yes, even to the point of tears and weeping, or at least being grieved, it's a fair question to ask if you're actually hearing God's Word. Are you grieved into repenting after hearing God's Word? Goodness gracious, isn't that why we need His Word? Because we're sinners. Even though we have the Holy Spirit, we still wrestle with the flesh and we have to put off the flesh daily. And how else are you going to know how to do that? We need His words. We need to change. Change. Not just more theology. Theology is great. You know I love theology. But if you're just accumulating better thoughts about God and better systems to understand truth, and you're not changing and getting more humility, more kindness, more repentance, and more, yes, joy in the Holy Spirit, then it's, it's really important that you ask, are you actually growing in real Christian theology? Part of the problem, especially in our culture, is that we don't want to feel sad. And if we're sad, we want it to be short and contained. We don't want to kind of lose self-control in those moments of sadness. So, in the clearest terms I can put it, then, one of the reasons joy might be escaping you in your life is not that you struggle with sadness or depression, but because you have not allowed yourself to mourn and weep and be grieved in this way. Even more simply, putting it more simply, maybe you're not happy because you have not allowed yourself to be sad nearly enough. Gloss over things so quickly. We don't want to be sad. Or we'll loathe ourselves. We'll become bitter, angry, frustrated, anxious. We're open. We're fine with feeling all those negative emotions, but sanctified sorrow, lament. I don't want to feel that. Get out of that. It is a root of joy. And make no mistake, if you pursue joy, gladness, happiness, without first being willing and humble to intentionally put on in your mind and heart the proverbial sackcloth and ashes, then joy will never be yours. Not this kind of joy. 
You'll find happiness. You'll be able to laugh at the cat videos. But you won't have deep Christian joy. Your soul knows it needs to be grieved and to weep. But our will is too stubborn. We won't go there. So, now we come to characteristics of joy. There are eight that I see in this text, very simply. There are probably more than eight characteristics of joy, even from this text, and there are for sure more characteristics of joy throughout Scripture, but we're just going to focus on these eight. With a particular focus, especially on verse 10. The first thing I see, at least when I come to this text, is that joy is covenantal. Joy is covenantal. What does that mean? Well, One of the things that I think you can miss really easily as you read through this text is the possessive adjectives. Notice this. The Lord, your God. Our Lord. And in the next verse, verse 11, this joy, uh, verse 10, this joy that of the Lord who is ours is our strength. How can the leaders speak to the people this way? Because the Lord God had made these people his possession through covenant. This implies divine initiative. Your joy is rooted in God's initiative. He is the one who makes us glad, right? The song that we're not going to sing today, but it's a great one. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice. I will rejoice. I will respond with my will in rejoicing because he has made me glad. God is covenantal, and this is what He wants to produce in our hearts. Joy is rooted then in a relationship with the Lord God, based and built on His promises to you. Do you know the Lord? You may have a lot of ideas about God. Use that word so Flippantly, God this, God that. As I said before, God is a title of an office of the supreme being. It's not a name. To believe in God makes you a theist, not a Christian. This is why the Lord is our God. Our God is the Lord, the I Am, Yahweh Himself, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That One is our God. And He has made His covenant with us. He is the only source of joy because He is the only one true God. If you want real joy, real, lasting, deep happiness and gladness, it must be in the Lord. Joy in Him is why you were made. Go to Him. Trust Him. Secondly, we see So, number one, joy is covenantal. Secondly, we see joy is commanded. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is commanded. It's right here on the surface. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to see that. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, this is one of the most repeated commands in the Scriptures. might be the most repeated command in the Scriptures. You shall rejoice in your God. The whole calendar of the Israelites was built around this 
purpose of creating situations so that the people of God could have joy in their God. It is a command. Go rejoice. Hey, you were grieved. You've wept. That's good. So now it's time to rejoice. Go rejoice. It's not just God is not saying the priests are not saying, oh, goodness gracious, uh, go stop being sad. Uh, here's a Kleenex. It's okay. A pat on the back, right? Rather, go and make a big deal about this and celebrate. There's no other way to describe what the priest and the leaders commanded than a consecrated, massive, holy, citywide party. And did you know, like I said, as the most repeated command in Scripture, when rejoice comes to the Lord's mind, it's not just this inner disposition of the mind. We'll see this in a little bit, but it involves everything. Does it surprise you about the Lord that He seems very, very concerned about your joy, your rejoicing, your happiness? This is why the Lord's Supper, making it up into a big, rapturous, and sacred, consecrated, holy, church-wide feast is the point. Because it's such a repeated command in Scripture. You, the people of God, must come together and rejoice in God. Gladness in the Lord God is your most sacred duty, Christian. And your highest good. And it is the best thing for you. It is why you were created. The third characteristic of joy is that it is deliberate. We see this from verse 10. I considered saying something like joy is planned or worked for. It just sounds better to say deliberate because it indicates something of intentionality. You're going after it. You have to be deliberate about this, people. It doesn't just happen to you. The Lord is telling them, do it. Plan it. Go get after it. Buy the stuff. Do the things. Give the goods. There's work involved in making this rejoicing happen. We're coming up on the holiday season, so I hope that you'll be okay with me using this analogy. But a pastor told a story about this very idea of of making things special. And they were traveling as a family, and he came back into town on Christmas Day, so the first part of Christmas Day, in the airport. They finally arrived at their house at about 9 p.m., put the kids down because they were already asleep, and it's just him and his wife, a cardboard box, because they had just moved, take out from someplace, I don't know, like Taco Bell, and they just ate over the cardboard box Christmas Day, and that was it. I think there was maybe one candle. And he said, we're never going to let that happen again. Because Christmas... Be a big deal. We should do it up big. And side note, if if you don't have a place to go on Thanksgiving or Christmas, or a family isn't coming into town for you, come talk to us. We want to make sure you have a place for an atmosphere of sacred feasting with God's people. But again, this ties back to what we saw at the beginning. The scope is more precise here, though. Joy does not just happen to you. In the same way that having those really special holiday experiences don't just happen. Parents, you know this, it takes a lot of planning, a lot of work to create those atmospheres for the rejoicing. 
takes planning, care, and effort. This is what God is commanding them. Go get it ready. Just, just think of how much work it would have taken to keep all the feasts in Israel. All for the sake of getting us to these moments of sacred celebration. So, you may seriously lack joy in your heart. What steps are you taking to create an environment of joy in the Lord in your life? And for the people of God. It takes work. Are you willing to put in the effort? Number four, joy is holistic. See this again from verse 10. Or might I say, joy ideally is holistic. Yes, it is true that even if all the blessings of your life are taken away, you can still have joy in the Lord. That's what we saw earlier. Joy is defiant. But, brothers and sisters, it will not always be so. One day, sooner than you think and feel, you'll be home. won't need one shred of defiance in your heart to have joy in the Lord. Paul can rejoice with Silas in the lowest part of the dungeon in Philippi and sing hymns after having been beaten, rejected by his own people. But aren't you glad that that's not how the story ends? There are some preachers and teachers, I love them dearly. I respect and admire them who seem to indicate in their writing, in their preaching, that the only way to know that you have real joy in God is if you can have it and there's nothing going good in your life. And maybe that's true for a few moments in our lives. When you get the phone call or you're in the ICU with a loved one, maybe it's true that in those moments you need to really see that you do, in fact, have joy in the Lord. But to use the Christmas example again, sure, you could say that if you indeed really had the holiday spirit, then a cardboard box with Taco Bell, you should still be able to feel and sense that holiday spirit. But why would you want to insist on having that every single year? To just prove a point. It seems to me that the degree to which you are willing to have and go out and take joy in God will map to your zeal in making a big deal about it with the people of God. Joy in the Lord then is not just a spiritual quality that you can never see or never know about deep down in my heart, down in my heart, down in my heart that no one knows about. At some point, it has to come out and want to conform the world to the joy that you have. That's what's happening in this text. Stop weeping, have joy now, and make your environment look like you're happy. Fifth characteristic joy that we see, joy is communal. Joy is communal. If this text gives you any indication about how to get started of pursuing joy in your life, enjoying or rejoicing in God over good food and good drink with God's people is a really great place to start. 
why we structure Celebration Sundays the way we do. Right after the Lord's Supper, we go in and enjoy a love feast together with one another. This is why we structure our groups the way we do, and why we encourage so much hospitality. Because we want you to be able to have this. It's the starting place. Joy in the Lord, then, is often the byproduct of enjoying one another's company and the good blessings of this life together. Do you approach your church family, your brothers and sisters in this room, as if the way you treated them and involved them was a central, crucial root of your joy? Putting it very clearly, very briefly, one of the ways you can know if what you're seeking is real Christian joy is making sure that everyone else can have the same joy in God. Is that true of you? Or, or are you content if it's just you? Or maybe you and your spouse or you and your kids who come away feeling really blessed and having joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord comes when our joy in the Lord is found in the joy of other people in the Lord. As the Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The thing that brought John the most joy late in his life as he's writing to the church in Ephesus is if I can hear and know and whatever I can devote to making sure you walk in the truth, that's where my joy is found. That as a church. We need to consider it emergency in our church family and in our gatherings when we see and know that someone among us is on the outside looking in when it comes to joy in the Lord. But going after them means bringing them in. This is what, what the father does to the older brother. You can't, you can't be in and enjoy it's not a harsh rebuke. It's come in and rejoice. The sixth characteristic of joy is we see joy is given. I'm not as well versed in Hebrew as I am in Greek, and even there I'm not that great. But it's almost impossible to miss the theological implications of the grammar here. I'll read it again. And do not be grieved, second half of verse 10, and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I've been saying all along joy in the Lord, and that's true. That's what it has to be. It must be joy in Him, but understand that our joy in the Lord is first rooted in the joy of the Lord. This means that for this joy that we want, this joy that we see on display in verse 12, the joy that I hope you look at and you feel a bit envious for, the joy that I hope that you're willing to work for and build towards as a church family, that joy first starts in the very heart of God Himself. It is His joy. And it's not just imitation. The text is not saying, have joy like the Lord has joy, like, like model Him. That, that's probably true too, but that's not the point. That's not the implication of the grammar. It's that it is His own joy 
that becomes our strength, He is conveying, He is giving of His own heart, His own joy to His people. That is the nature of true joy. And how is it that the triune God, who is an eternal, incomprehensible, infinitely powerful being, can share His own joy with His people? How can that be? That would be a sermon or sermon series all to itself, but just let it be known that this is what's happening. This is exactly what Jesus Christ Himself says. These things I have spoken to you, John 15:11. these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The seventh characteristic of joy that we see is that joy is transforming very quickly here. It, it, it marks a personal metamorphosis. They weep and mourn, and because of that, they become the kind of person who no longer needs to weep and mourn, but they become the kind of person that God says the right thing for you now to do is to rejoice. You are now the kind of person where the proper posture towards the world and everything that is, is rejoicing. We see that in the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts. And when they came up out of the water, right? He's converted. He believes in Jesus. He understands the promises of God. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Teleportation is real. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. You believe that God has done for you what He says that He has done for you. If you believe it, then you are no longer the kind of person that is allowed to be sad all the time. And I understand personally that it is very difficult to align our hearts with the joy of the Lord. This is what Jesus says. To his disciples, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. It's your birthright. Do not let anyone take it from you. Not even yourself. Lastly, the eighth characteristic of joy we see, verse 12, is that joy is Godward. And all the people, we've been referring back to this verse over and over, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions, meaning making sure that other people have enough to rejoice with, sending portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They're not just whipped up into an emotional state. The emotional state that they're whipped up into is lament. Brokenness. And then they're commanded and they, they yield to God's command to go out and make it happen and rejoice. And they become the type of people that rejoice. They're Godward because they're responding in obedience to the command that had been conveyed to them from their leaders. They respond to God's Word. They're able to have great rejoicing because they understood God's words and how they were to live. And listen, I'm not saying... That if you just read your Bible a lot and memorize a lot of verses, that you'll just automatically have joy in your life. Like It's a good place to start, but that's not an automatic guarantee. It can't hurt. 
But I think what this is saying more is that they heard, they understood, and they obeyed. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. They were His sheep and they had heard His voice and they got up and started following Him. Marked, even in the very first, by a will to obey this command to rejoice. You say, this day is holy to the Lord? Say no more! We will go and make it a day of rejoicing because it is holy to the Lord our God. So a few questions and applications then from this text. First question, maybe you've been asking this, why is this all so important? Why does joy in the Lord matter so much? Why does the posture of your heart, your joy, why is that such a big deal? In many ways, all of redemptive history can be summarized in this way. God's people find themselves in a bad situation. God delivers them out of said bad situation so that they can rejoice in Him as Deliverer and as Savior. That is the flow of redemptive history in your Bible. If this was the case under the Old Covenant, how much more so for us under the New Covenant? God is seeing His people in a dire situation, captive by our sins, enslaved, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and He delivers us out of the bad situation to bring us into a place, even now, to rejoice in Him. That's the point. This is what God is up to, to create a people who delight in Him and find their joy in Him. Another easy way to show why it matters so much is this is the easiest way to know if you're doing well spiritually. You can really boil that question down to, to one very, very simple question. What really makes you happy? That will tell you all you need to know about your spiritual maturity. What really makes you happy? What made Jesus a perfect man is that his joy never stopped being in his Father and doing his will. Can be so for us. Also, what makes sin sinful? That's a complicated philosophical question. Is it just divine command theory? Is it just whatever God, you know, like rolls the dice? Well, here will be the things that are wrong. No, things are sinful because they cut you off from joy in God. And this is how anything that is good can become a problem because even a good thing can become an idol and steer you off course from joy in God. Second question under questions and applications is this. How much consumerism still influences us. This goes back to what I was saying about joy being built. When it comes to us as a church, maybe if we could just have the right fill in the blank. Maybe we could just have enough fill in the blank. If it is true that joy is built and joy is on the far side of serving, then are we serving like our joy depended on it? You know, Right next to our property, they started building this building. 
massive project, but the first thing, if you notice, what they did is clearing the ground. Otherwise, that building can't be built. No concrete can be poured. Before the first nail is driven or the first screw is driven in, they have to clear the ground, serving sacrificially and also in ways that you might not want to is the clearing of the ground, of the building of joy. There are a lot of opportunities for service, and there are people in our church who serve very sacrificially, and they're worn out. If you want to clear the ground for joy to be built in your heart in the Lord, start serving. Are you willing to serve in ways that you don't want, but you know that the other person really needs? what Jesus did. Came and served us in the way that he knew we needed most. Be like him. Third, how can we improve specifically as a church in our pursuit of joy together? I have no notes on this point. I'm just speaking from my heart pastorally. It is fascinating to me as you look at this text, it seems like one of the central components of their joy is that they were making sure others had enough to rejoice. But it very simply, in a way that might ruffle some feathers, their joy was rooted to making sure everyone else had a good time. In the Lord, but that was part of the point. Making sure everyone else had a good time. This is the same principle at work in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. When we read those idealistic descriptions of the type of community they had, it wasn't just because they received a new charter for how... Goods and services are supposed to be distributed among people. They wanted everyone else to have joy in the Lord. The joy that they had found. So they were selling their property and giving their possessions and their time and laying it at the apostles' feet to make sure that all of us together can rejoice in the Lord. Do you want all of us to have a good time in the Lord? Or are you okay just talking to the people that are just like you or spending time with those that help you have a good time. You want to send away those of our family that make it too loud. Are we committed as a church? Understand, our joy is at stake. I want joy, brothers and sisters. And if it doesn't bring you sadness to see one of your brothers or sisters on the outside looking in for that joy that we all want to have together in the Lord, then it's not joy in the Lord that you have. You're just having a good time in a fleshly sense. This is what Jesus Himself did. We were on the outside looking in. And He came and took on flesh, taking on the form of a servant, and served and served and served and served and made sure that we could join Him at the table. Feasting as adopted sons and daughters of God before our Father forever. In many ways, the incarnation, all of salvation, could be summarized as divine hospitality. He's bringing us into His home. Fourth and lastly, how can this joy be yours? Talked a lot about joy, characteristics of joy. Hopefully you've seen the outline of it, of this deep rejoicing in God. Verse 12, 
How can it be yours? Maybe you don't know this one true God. Maybe you do not know the Lord. Maybe you believe in God, but you do not trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not in covenant with Him. Repent and trust in Him. One of the subtle things in this passage that we haven't talked about yet is it seems like if Nehemiah is the one who's writing this, that he intentionally avoids using the possessive adjectives until he gets to the verse where they are grieved. So it's the great God, the law of Moses, the book, and then after they're grieved into repenting, to use Paul's terminology, then he says, the Lord our God, the Lord God who is ours, his joy is our strength. In a sense, the covenant is renewed. They're confirmed as being in this covenant because they repented. And trusted in Him. And the same invitation stands open to you today. If you would repent and trust in the Lord, then this joy in God can indeed be yours. And sadly, I think, maybe I could say I know, that this is why people will not trust in the Lord Jesus. Not because they can't see Him physically. Not because the preacher preaches too long. And not because the Christians contend to be hypocrites. But because people are unwilling to forsake their sin. You see, it's a, it's a competition at, at its very core. You're either deciding to have your joy in your sin, or you're making the shift in your heart to trust that Jesus knows what's best for you. And you will find your joy in Him. Disbelieving your own mind of what you think will make you happy and trusting the one who created you. That is the shift. That is repentance. The summons is always the same. Be done with your sin. Not because God is some cosmic killjoy who doesn't want you to have any fun. Rather, be done with your sin. Trust in Him. Trust in Him because He is the Creator and He knows far better than you do about what will make you happy. For the believer, as I said before, and I'll say again, I'll keep saying it, joy in the Lord, this degree of rejoicing is your birthright. This is what the Lord is leading us to now in this life. Do you trust Him? Will you follow Him to it? Will we come to church to be obedient in doing what needs to be done to build it? We'll close with a passage that we could have preached from in a message about joy. But hopefully now you understand how it can even happen from Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Pray. Father, we are thankful for all that you have done make us glad. May we respond in obedience and rejoice together. Give us this deep abiding joy in the Lord Jesus. Help us see that it is ours for the taking if we will but follow you in obedience. Give us hunger for your word. In Jesus' name.